Welcome everyone. Bienvenidos a todos. This is Nuestro South Loud and Proud. I am Axel Herrera and I am your host. This incredible series will explore the poder y cultura of Latinx folks in the South through perspectives of amazing scholars who have the lived experiences and the research background on what it's like to be Latino, Latina, Latinx in the South. Today, we're having a great conversation about Latinx music in Appalachia. So we have a wonderful guest, Sofia Enrique. She's a scholar, a teacher, a musician from Appalachian, Ohio. She is a PhD candidate of ethnomusicology at Ohio State University, where she teaches undergraduate courses in the School of Music. Welcome, Sofia. Uh, her dissertation is titled Canciones de las Appalachias, Latinx Music, Migration, and Belonging in Appalachia and it sheds light on the long-standing contributions of Latinx people to Appalachian music and show how Latinx Appalachian communities make sense of their social political circumstances through music. So she's talking about big questions here. And then lastly, she also plays Appalachian and Mexican music styles such as Ranchera, she uh, plays bluegrass, and she performs with the folk trio Good Time Girls in Columbus, Ohio. So doing a lot, playing a lot, amazing background. Thank you so much. Welcome, Sofia. Thank you so much, Axel. It is such a placer to be here. I'm really excited for our conversation. Yeah, this is exciting. So this is uh, our conversation that's kind of starting with these two themes of poder and cultura. And today we're talking about cultura, lo que es música, you know? And I am super excited. You have an amazing background. And I think um, we can start with that, learning a little bit about who you are, what you do, and what you enjoy. So before getting a little bit into like the weeds, uh, we're going to go for a quick rapid question round to just kind of get a sense of, you know, what your experience is as a person who's grown up in Appalachia in the South, and then we'll go more into what your personal story is, right? So this will give us like a snapshot of, of what you are. So I'm ready. You're ready. <laughs> we'll fill in the blanks later, but um, so you're a musician, right? What was your favorite spot to play music when you were younger? My favorite spot to play music? Oh, probably, probably in like my, like the living room of my parents' house, like practicing. I feel like there I felt the most, um, free to make mistakes. Spent a lot of time, like, playing really bad middle school trumpet until I got like not so bad so yeah I feel like that doesn't always trumpet doesn't seem like a you know like you can imagine guitar you're like strumming in the living room <laughs> but trumpet yeah. you're just like no there's no delicate way to go about it it's not always good so <laughs> that's hilarious okay so uh we're talking about kind of Appalachia and parts of the south uh in this episode what is an Appalachian southern word or phrase Maybe that someone like me that's from North Carolina wouldn't know or hear that often. Okay, well, I wanted to say the most obvious, which is maybe y'all, but <laughs> I think... I guess I hear that. <laughs> yeah, and like anyone who listens to Dolly Parton will know, you know, y'all. Um, oh, this is a great question. Well, this is a fun one. So my dad, who I'm sure I'll be sharing a bit more about at some point because it's part of the... The personal connection here but has a thing um a southern thing where in instead of saying to take with one like i'm taking something 
you're carrying it with you. And so sometimes growing up, um, instead of like, oh, um, I, would you like me to carry you to school in the morning? That meant like, would you like a ride to school? <laughs> All right. Um, next one. Did you grow up in an urban or rural uh, location? And I guess out of those, if you've experienced one or the other, which one do you prefer now? So I grew up in Batavia, Ohio, which is in Claremont County, which is the furthest west Appalachian County in Ohio. So about 40 miles outside of the city of Cincinnati. And it is rural or semi-rural, I would suppose, mm -hmm. I would say. And my family actually has a small dairy goat farm out this way. And for those reasons, um, because who wouldn't want to spend a lot of time hanging around goats? I love the country life. Okay, so you're always a fan of the country life. And have, have you been in, like, lived in the city for, for a period of time since you're kind of close? Um, I have not spent, you know, time living in the city of Cincinnati, but um, through my graduate work at Ohio State have been, you know, close to the city of Columbus, which is about two hours north of my hometown. But your heart's still in the country. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> That's great. Um, and maybe now going a little bit into uh, some of the topic of, of music. <laughs> I have a very small kind of idea of what yodeling is. And you referenced it in a little bit of the, the topics that you mentioned. I have the Walmart kid in my head. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it's very limited, right? I'm, I'm not that, uh, I guess, familiar uh, so could you break down for, you know, average everyday person who's not too familiar, what is yodeling? How would you describe it? Oh, okay. You know, this is actually like a very technical question. Oh, um, <laughs> but I would say, okay, so, I mean, yodeling is very prominent in mm -hmm. early country music of someone like, you know, Hank Williams or Jimmy Rogers. Um which, you know, is where Walmart Kid, I think, takes his inspiration from. And uh, yodeling, I don't know too much, but also has, you know, in a lot of early Appalachian ballad singing traditions and country song traditions have their roots in Europe. So um, yodeling is like you're taking a vow and you're putting it in different registers in your head and you're kind of giving it like a different sound. So I don't know. I'm not even going to try. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just funny because like there's um, with things like that, right? It's like, we'll talk about, we'll go into this, but in terms of this music, in terms of like this folkness to music, right? With Appalachia and then kind of this Mexican, more like Mexican folk music. Like there are some of these things that are like, not maybe don't have the same origin but they have kind of this like nature to them that's kind of fun different that you know that right now most pop culture doesn't have uh so it's super yeah. cool when i was listening to it and we'll get to some examples that a little bit uh about that yeah. awesome so thank you so much for engaging in these random questions uh so let's start more going into kind of who you are and a little bit about your background and then I wanted to start with a, a small quote that you mentioned um, in a little bit of what you had written. What does the quote, don't you know that you're half Mexican and half hillbilly mean? 
I read that and I was like, that's a great question. I'd like to know. So this uh, question is a question that my mother would playfully pose to mm-hmm. my sister and I as kids. Um, and it's a question that I never really, you know, it was always asked in a way that was just, you know, kind of joking um, because my that is my heritage so my mom's family is um you know white anglo appalachian um have part of the scots irish history and heritage uh that a lot of folks um whose families you know settled in the appalachian region have and so her um, my great-grandmother on her side you know, migrated from eastern kentucky um, to Southern Ohio in the late twenties, um, just before the depression and the Mexican side is from my dad who is a Chicano, but, um, not a Texas or California Chicano, Mm -hmm. but, um, a Mississippi Chicano. So the, the history of my family, of my dad's family is, um, migration to the Mississippi Delta in the, around that same time in the late twenties. So the, don't you know, you're half Mexican, half hillbilly was always my mom's way of sort of, um, poking at my sister and I's, you know, identity really. Um, and not in a, not in an antagonistic way, but mm-hmm. in a playful way. So this word hillbilly that often has these derogatory connotations in the same way that Mexican does, um, was, how she saw us, you know. Hmm. That's that's it's like kind of just taking both of those terms and like just own it. <laughs> just take it and run with it. Just owning it, yeah. Well, that's that's crazy. So um I think, you know, if someone were to tell me right now, yeah, Mexican in Mississippi, I'd be like, what? <laughs> if someone tells me Mexicans in Mississippi in 1920, that's a even more of a what? Uh, so how um, does your family, in particular, kind of this like migration of Mexican side, come to occupy not only the space of Mississippi, but now more of like the more recent like uh, Appalachia context? Julie Wise, who I know, you know, is a friend um, and uh, important person behind the podcast, right, um, has written extensively about the history of Mexicanos in the South. And I actually learned a lot of what I know about my family's history from um, Julie. So shout out to Julie for, you know, that 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 is such a valuable resource. Um, And the story that I always knew growing up from my dad's side was that this was a migration, they were sharecroppers. So Mm -hmm. lots of um, Mexicans migrated to parts of the U.S. South that had, an, you know, sharecropping opportunities, um, including Arkansas, where my family was originally aiming for, but the water was too high, so they had to settle in Mississippi. What does what does that mean? The water was too high. It means you- there was flooding in their fields, <clears throat> um, so they kept going further. They kept going across the river into Mississippi and, and settled in the Delta. Um, so that's Cleveland, Mississippi, Northwest Mississippi, um, mm-hmm. that region. Um, so that's how they came to be there. You know, it's a it's it's the classic migration story of taking an economic opportunity 
um, perhaps one that, you know, I don't know if the plan was to stay or to come back as a lot of folks did into the thirties and the forties went yeah. back to Mexico, but, um, my family stayed. So who was it that, that came first? Was that your great grandparents or? Yes. So this was my great grandparents who, uh, actually my great grandmother who I grew up knowing until I was a teenager when she passed, um, was also born in Mississippi in the twenties or in the teens. So, you know, she was actually already there and her, um, parents Mexican great grandmother. This is my, yes, this is my Mexican oh. great grandmother who was actually, her parents were from Cuba and Mexico, actually ah. Durango, Mexico. So, so there's um there's that heritage and then the other set of great grandparents from the the texas mexico border near um del rio and acuna so there's that and that that set of great grandparents that i grew up knowing i would have met or that i knew up growing knowing my great grandmother met in the mississippi delta and mm. so nicolas my great grandfather um, who came from the Texas Mexico border um, was a musician, mm -hmm. uh, which is also you know relevant to my whole story. And yeah, and that's that's an amazing transition. I I, I am curious uh, to have you share how does music um, either originate or come to be such a big part of your family? Because from what I read, it's it's like it starts long ago, and now you're kind of even studying, but you also perform it. So how does music come to be part of your family? Yeah, it is It is really central. And I would say it, it's very visible on my mom's side, right, the Appalachian, the hillbilly side, <laughs> um, because I have, a, I have aunts and uncles and cousins who, you mm -hmm. know, um, some of them have also studied music in school. A lot of them played in amateur <laughs> ways, but the connections to the folk tradition and particularly country and Mexican music that comes from my dad's family. And that starts with my great grandfather, Nicolas, who would have arrived in, in Mississippi as a teenager. Mm -hmm. um, but n knowing uh, some basics about the fiddle and the accordion and um, he got good and he became really active in um, Mexican communities in Mississippi. So he, he played the fiddle at Mexican country dances. Um, but he also hung out with a lot of non-Mexican people and played, mm -hmm. you know, country and bluegrass type of music, um, on his fiddle. And he, I, I have the stories and I have, I have some photos of him, um, playing in a, in a shack that was in my great grandparents' backyard, which they called the tamale shack because, um, not only was he a musician, but he was a tamale maker. So I have some um, anecdotes from his friends and some of his uh, students or mentees, so to speak, of going to play and to practice at his tamale shack and, and leaving smelling like tamale. <laughs> <laughs> Did they eat at the same time? I would hope so. I yeah. Mean, yeah. How could you not? Yeah, how could you not? You're right there. It makes them play for longer. <laughs> you got food here. Yeah, keep going. Exactly. Oh, that's 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 great. Um, that's a. I mean, how can you let go of kind of that yeah, history and, of music when it's just always been there? Yeah, and so 
that's uh, my great grandfather Nicolas and and my great grandmother Maria. They had twelve children, hmm. um, one of whom was my abuelo, um, who recently um, passed in this past October, um, and so a lot most of their children learned to play and or sing in some way. So I have mm-hmm. lots of um, dias and tios who, you know, still um, if they don't actively play, they're they're very attuned to to music and have been very supportive of of my interests too that's amazing that's great lots of music at family gatherings yeah i was thinking about not only is it big but then it's like all these sounds are probably at these events yeah it's you know i i have you know because i grew up in ohio um this is not the side of my family that I was around most of the time, but whenever I was around them, it was always noticeable because it's, it's loud and there's lots of us. Um, it, you mentioned that briefly. Um, you mentioned kind of this like um, like 600 mile trip or trek down towards Mississippi. So what is kind of the the relationship or like the the space that you've lived in or that your family kind of spans is large, right? Appalachia in itself is, is also an immense area that covers yeah. different states, different regions. Um, how are kind of where you are now, where that history starts in Mississippi, how is it similar and how is it, is it different? You know, I've thought about this a lot because um, even as an undergraduate student at West Virginia University, I would make this trip from Morgantown, West Virginia, mm-hmm. back to Southern Ohio, you know, to, to come home. And the changes and the shifts in the mountains are so obvious. Um, and the same is true for anyone who's taken a, a trip, you know, up through the Carolinas or Virginia or anywhere sort of on the periphery or into Appalachia and I think that I've I always felt this sense of I always felt a sense of being at home in Mississippi um, because of these family connections but also because there's these there's this geographical shift where you're sort of like literally settling into the the land there Mm -hmm. like you know the flatness of the delta but also the the sort of beginning of um what Mm. is in the northeast direction becomes you know the appalachian mountains yeah and so i i imagine these different paths that people like my great-grandparents and their parents would have traveled literally you know to get to these places where we don't think of mexican people being Mm -hmm. um and you know what the changes that they would have noticed in the land and, and these shifts and these sorts of things. And I feel, I feel, um, like my, my, what I feel connected to, or my version, I would say of like Mexican culture of Chicano identity is, is the Mississippi version. (laughs) Uh, because that's where I went to plug in. Yeah. Um, that's, Which, that's, what, that's where it starts yeah that's where the richness of like who you are in terms of that culture and history exists and started yeah i would say that those trips or that sort of migration that that like semi-annual trip or my, migration or 
pilgrimage. I don't know what it is. I don't know if I have a, a good word for it, but those, those were like returning to a place and, and then, um, you know, also returning to home here in Southern Ohio, where, where my family, my, on my mom's side is very rooted in agriculture and the mm -hmm. land, you know, caring for animals and these sorts of things on both ends that I felt like, like that's the, the, the bridge between, you know, Mississippi and, and Appalachian, Ohio, um, is this connection to place and to land. And I think that a lot of folks from, uh, rural backgrounds or who grew up in the Appalachian region have a similar sense of, of identity via their connection to place. Like I'm hearing that and I'm like thinking of how people, you know, I, either conversations that we've had or, or components we've read of people who are having those similarities in like Georgia, people having those similarities in like Eastern North Carolina, Appalachians, like Western North Carolina. So like those, those stories and kind of themes definitely span um, different regions, right? People place themselves based on that history and that location. Um, and then talking about that, before we get more into a little bit of your work and what you study and some examples of some great, amazing music, um, I would like for you to help introduce a little bit more about this place that we've been talking about, Appalachia. And so what are some of these stereotypes about Appalachia? And then we can go into like how Latinos exist within that space as well. Yeah, so I think when people think of Appalachia in the stereotypical way, in white, poor, rural, culturally backward, mm. you know, these are the things that come to mind. And if someone would conjure an image of anything to do with music, it might be like an old white dude sitting on the front porch with the banjo. <laughs> yeah, before you said banjo, I was like, banjo? <laughs> Which is quite ironic because I'll, I'll have a plug as an ethnomusicologist here that mm -hmm. the banjo is actually a West African derived instrument that was mm -hmm. made popular in large part by um, enslaved people in the U.S. South. So there's that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah, these these stereotypes that really return to race and class, mm -hmm. right? Whiteness and poorness um, in a way that I would say the discourse of Appalachia from a field like Appalachian studies is distinct from Southern studies in that it the Southern studies, I think, recognizes this historic binary of the South, right? There's there's an understanding of this black-white mm -hmm. history in a way that narratives of Appalachia rarely address, you know, these non-white histories um, in a way that people sort of have a, a, a consciousness about when talking about the South um, in general. Um, yeah, so I would say that image that we just were talking about, that's the stereotype, right? It's a great point. And so when there is this kind of default uh, view of race and class, like you mentioned, white and poor of this space, just like when Latinos come into the Southern binary, which Appalachia encompasses some of it, but like you said, it has a little bit right. more distinct boundary. Uh, Latinos come into the South and then there's this black white binary. And it's like, what do we do with this? other that comes in right where do we place them and then there's this negotiation based on our own appearances 
based on nationalities, based on language of where Latinos are like placed in different parts, right? Either technic by technicalities or by expressing discriminatory or derogatory like views of people. What happens when Latinos come into Appalachia? How do they exist there? They exist in a very complicated way. <laughs> so many things all at once. Um, and so many of those things, these identity negotiations, I like this word, um, are not pretty, mm -hmm. I would say. Um, and, you know, we're getting into, uh, we're on the outskirts of the conversation about race and colorism and identity in the Latinx community at large, right? Which I know mm -hmm. that's not our job, that's not our conversation here, but anywhere that, you know, Latinx people form, that the, these, these dynamics will present themselves. And I think if we think about a place like the U.S. South, which you know, such and the intensity of that history of racial violence. Um, it's, it's, um, it's profound, you know, and so how, like, how does a, a, a people, a group of people who are racialized by a, a, a variety of practices and processes are, how are they mapped onto that? Well, they really aren't in any, mm -hmm any neat way and that's you know something that um the work of people like you know julie wise and cecilia marquez they, they show that um because you know there's we have proof that uh mexicans who would have been um you know a, probably acquaintances of my family in mississippi were actively negotiating for like you all talk about in a previous episode of the show, right? We're, we're actively arguing for Mexican students to not go to black schools mm. because being seen as Mexican in the US South is, was preferable to blackness and always will be in the United States, right? Um, and I think that that is a truth and a reality that we really haven't fully reconciled yet within the, the Latinx community and, um, you know, interrogations of whiteness within our community of colorism. Uh, it's been interesting to see different conversations unfold recently via social media and, and different scholarly communities too of, you know, let's talk about what it means for of what the diversity of the Latinx community really means and how do specifically, you know, white Latinxes or what a lot of folks have tried to, you know, understand as white passing, like, what does that mean? How do you, how do you wield that privilege? Like, how do I wield my privilege as someone who benefits from whiteness, like, and as a member of the Latinx community? Mm -hmm. um, so I would say in Appalachia, um, you know, these, I don't, these conversations aren't necessarily happening to my knowledge, um, but if we're just thinking about the the broader racial dynamics that, you know, we've kind of identified here, that um, Latinx people are going to be uh, visibly racialized in a way, but this happens on the spectrum because mm -hmm. we are not all the same. Um, and there's this ambiguity in this in-betweenness that happens and has happened historically through things like legislation too, or immigration law and policy. Um, 
so I'm I'm kind of derailing, but <laughs> you know, I think the point is that um, there there's a question mark sometimes around like where these communities fit in terms of the racial dynamics of of a place like Appalachia. Yeah, and I think one of the the, the most elementary or like initial conversations that you have with Latinos and Latino migrants uh, in the US is, is first this question of visibility, right? And mm -hmm. so when, when someone tells me there's Latinos in Appalachia, I'm like, well, one, I don't know Appalachia, but like, where, where would they be, right? Where would I find them? And so you reference this a little bit as well. And I think, you know, depending on the maturity of, you know, certain essentially immigrant populations, um, right. a lot of those initial conversations start with one, navigating the racial dynamics of the location, but then also this question of visibility. And if you're thinking about like the Southwest, it, they're like talking about a whole other different set of conversations than we're talking about yeah. in the South. So this question of visibility is one of the, those initial first ones. Um, yeah, where do you find Latinos? Yeah, yeah the, the visibility and invisibility question is important because, you know, my whole like work is predicated on this, um, on this truth that there are indeed like mm -hmm. 2 million, you know, Latinx people in the Appalachian region, which accounts for over 6% of the entire population. And that's just what the census tells us. Yeah. So, you know, we're not, which is, not, which is definitely a super accurate. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and the, and, you know, I'm thinking, okay, well that, that's 6%, it's 6%. And that's, you know, who knows what it is in the, the recent count of 2020. And, you mm -hmm. know, we're working with these very, um, in some ways, benign numbers, especially when we're, you know, talking about migrant farming communities, um, you know, where a lot of folks are um, undocumented or um, other parts of Appalachia where the, an undocumented immigrant community that's even you know, more diverse than just Latinx folks. So I, I think that our, our numbers are not reliable here. Um, but yeah, so if they are indeed there, where are they? And I think that there is historical precedent for this and I'll share a bit of context. Um, so in my dissertation, I've been working with a collection of photos from the um, Wilson Archives, the, the Southern Folklife Archives at UNC Chapel Hill and in the Library of Congress. And we have, we have photos of Mexican migrant mining communities in mm. West Virginia, Morgantown, oh. where I went to school in the 1930s, in the 20s and 30s. So this was a not uncommon tactic for mining companies to um, recruit immigrant labor, um, specifically of of non-white people to sort of heighten racial tensions and diffuse diffuse um tensions of of people who miners who are striking um mm -hmm. for you know unfair labor and working conditions so the this tactic of recruiting like black and brown people to work as miners in central appalachia um worked in mm -hmm. in some ways um so we have evidence photo evidence of of communities of you know, Mexicans in West Virginia who lived in clusters of houses and, you know, were um, probably, I don't know, I don't know how many exactly, but we know that, you know, they, they were enough to 
to be involved in their communities and to um, be active in in these these local communities. So so it happens in these pockets, um, and I think you see this a lot, you know, um, in North Carolina where you have these different pockets of migrant labor farms um, where folks might live in a like a set of acres and and the surrounding community you know 10 15 20 miles away has has no idea mm -hmm. um and i've found this in my field work as i've encountered folks like there's another anecdote is that i was uh participating in a um workshop in mate one west virginia for a public folklore project i was working on and Mate Wan is also a historic coal mining town, the site of the Hatfield McCoy feuds. Um, and I met, there's one, there's exactly one place to eat in Mate Wan, and it's a small Mexican restaurant called Mi Pueblito. And the, uh, one of the workers at Mi Pueblito is this uh, really talented Mexican songwriter who's written songs like for Los Tigres del Norte and oh okay <laughs> like very um you know he's a he's a tradition bearer uh -huh. a Mexican tradition bearer living in Maitland West Virginia um so there's you know these pockets that that we find um and I think that's that's how it happens and the whole you know we've been talking about this theme of like rurality, you know, Appalachia also has large urban centers. Uh -huh. And so these places like an, like an urban center gives more visibility to Latinx people by, by way of it, it being urban, you know, yeah. people are more living densely closer together. There's more businesses. There's a, this is a whole other history and topic. And I think what we're trying to do really is start introducing just kind of these nuances versus, you know, this blanket approach that there's, you know, not just, not, I forget the number, but not just like 11 million undocumented, but then there's like probably 40 to 60 million, just not just Hispanics or Latinos, but, you know, mixed status families, people from different cultures, generation one, two, three, maybe even four or five. So yeah, exactly. This is like, it's just one part of the nuance that I think it's a, it's a great introduction for many of other more people to look into some of the history or visit some of these locations. I think what you said earlier is true. Place like defines a lot, right? And just exploring and seeing that space. I, I went from like a more urban type setting from high school and college into now a rural setting where I'm living and the dynamics that happen are completely different, right? Uh, and it's, for me, it's been interesting to end up in a rural high school that you would consider typically as kind of like white and farming, but then it's a majority Hispanic high school in rural North Carolina, Eastern North Carolina, right? Those things, once you realize them, they start deconstructing your ideas or, or your defaults that you had of what it's supposed to be. Yeah. Or for example, if we talk about rural populations, we a lot of times ignore that rural populations are also black in many situations, right? For example, I, I, have, I have been in this like political mindset and I went to this conversation about like kind of breaking down voting patterns and stuff like that. If you talk about rural voters, black rural voters are very important in many ways. And so, yeah, that nuance is very special, very important. And if anything needs to be highlighted more. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, you're right. Like these uh, combinations or these populations, when we think of, you know, Latinx Appalachians, you know, rural African-Americans, like that is what gets us to our assumptions. Like mm -hmm. just the surprise, like if there's a reaction or some feeling of surprise or like, oh, that signals, right? That in itself uh, signals the assumptions we make about yeah. how, who, who is where. Yeah, no, definitely. All right, awesome. Let's kind of start transitioning to some of the um, the great work that's, that's going to help people fill in. What are we yes. talking about? <laughs> what are we what talking is, about? Because because I had read yeah. and, and listened to some of it, but I was like, all right, let's listen to some of it now. Um, so first, let me get a quick uh, rundown. We mentioned it at the top of the conversation um, a little bit about your work. Um, we're going to be talking a little bit and giving some examples about uh, the Lua project and Che Apalache, which are two different groups that have, have been doing doing very interesting work through their music, through their performance. Um, how would you describe them in the context of your work? Yeah, so the different types of music that I write about and the different groups that I have worked closely with all play what they identify as some fusion of Latinx mm -hmm. and Appalachian folk music. So the Lua project um, is based in Charlottesville, West or Charlottesville, Virginia, um, and play what they call Mexalachian music. And uh, this is a word that I've kind of um, taken in some different directions in my research too. And the Mexalachian music of the Lua project is that's the the Mexican and the Appalachian. Mm -hmm. And it's largely influenced by Mexican folk styles like Son Jarocho um, and Ranchera. And so that's the first group I think that we'll be talking about. And mm -hmm. the sort of visionary behind the Lua project is a dear friend and research collaborator of mine, Estela Knott, um, who I'm sure I'll talk about a bit. And then uh, you brought up Che Apalachi, who um, play what... They, so they're actually based in Buenos Aires mm -hmm. and they play what um, Joe Troop, who is the, the band leader, has identified as Latin grass. Um, so they are, they sort of market themselves as a bluegrass band um, first and foremost, and, but are really influenced by the incredibly rich traditions in Argentina and um, have, have sort of taken off in the um, popular bluegrass world. So, I mean, they're, they're playing or were pre COVID. Oh, they were, <laughs> you know, we're playing big festivals and really, oh, um, awesome. they've got a really, a really sort of firm presence in that world. So yeah, we're going to talk about some Mexalachian and Latin grass. Amazing. Uh, so that's great. So let's start and just give folks a little bit of a sense of, uh, what that is. So let's just listen to some of this. So, so this is the Lua project. And which song is this again? Um, this is, I believe it's called the immigration song or um, Desierto and Flor. Great. And so we'll just take a listen to it and then kind of break it down afterwards. Mm -hmm. 
este frío que me quema va congelándome el llanto deshielándose la vida con tanto sol de verano rompo el monte con mis piernas rompo el viento con mis manos rompo el viento con mis piernas rompo el monte con mis manos se rompe el alma sin mis hermanos se escapa el sueño de nuestras manos hoy nacen flores en el desierto que se ha regado con nuestra sangre con nuestro llanto nuestros dolores nuestro sudor
so fun <laughs> oh i yeah. love how they're jamming at the end they're just going um whew. um uh, so first i i think i, I want to share a little bit of my initial reactions because i know uh, for some folks that'll be their initial reactions as well and um i think well my, my first thing was like which is probably the great part about it i was like I don't necessarily like from the start identify like like anything that I think is Mexican, right? Which I think is great. I mean, that's part of the nuance, right? But then, um, and then I guess the part that hit me the most was the transition from like the Spanish part to then we just started singing in English. I loved it. Cause like in some ways my thing was like, this makes sense. Like it, it, it's something I had never seen but it makes sense, right? Like this, this kind of history or this progression is bilingual, it's different, it's a mix, it's a fusion. So, oh, that was great. Um, appreciate you for sharing that. Um, so, uh, I don't even know where to start. So, let me at first ask some like logistics so that other people who maybe are just hearing this understand. So who is it that's playing and what are they playing? Because it was a mix of instruments that I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, so the instruments that we heard there, actually the main um, rhythmic instrument that we heard providing these that is a traditional Mexican folk instrument called the jarana, which mm -hmm. is um, the main instrument behind Son Jarocho, the music okay. from Veracruz. Yeah, so, um, and who's playing the jarana in this in this song is a, a collaborator of the Lua project, Zenén Zeferino, mm -hmm. who is a well-known Son Jarocho maestro and um, culture bearer and teacher and, and musician from um, from uh, Jalapa, Veracruz. So that's what's going on with the, if someone maybe heard a string instrument that they couldn't quite identify, that's the Herana. And, um, and Estela, who is the, the leader of the Lua project that I mentioned before, is, is also playing Herana. We had a upright bass, um, we had a fiddle mm -hmm. or otherwise known as the violin, but, um, because we're talking about it in the context of Appalachian music, it's fiddle okay. and <laughs> uh, the same thing, but, you know, uh, instrument politics and, <laughs> and we also heard the accordion, accordion um, yes. which is also really prominent in a lot of Mexican like Norteño music mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot going on oh yeah I was like I was like wait where where are we at but it sounded great it sounded amazing and I honestly big fan after hearing it um and so kind of going into more of the theme of um what the Lua project represents and who they are and like what you kind of synthesize from the work that they do I think um I'm not sure if this is self-described or, or but, but it's a kind of a quote from what you wrote there, uh, cultural pollinator, bridging together musical styles from different continents and different countries. So this is kind of like a yeah. short description. 
So that's, I believe that actually comes straight from their um, about section on their, you know, they have a web page and all of this. Um, so yeah, Estella, the Mexican music that she plays, it's, it's her, the way that she's described it to me is that's the soundtrack of, of her life. So she mm -hmm. shares a similar narrative to mine in that um, you know, her, she grew up in rural Page County, Virginia, and her mother um, is from Juarez, Chihuahua, and her dad grew up there in Virginia. So she has um, the mixed heritage, but also this, you know, Mexican Appalachian history. And I like the the song Desierto en Flor because it, it's a really good example of some of the the messages behind their music, mm -hmm. which have to do with, um, you know, they can get political. They're talking about borders and they're talking about migration and they're talking about families and the struggle of coming to a place and staying. And, um, but there's also, um, you know, the interplay of the instruments. And so for Estela, you know, I, I, I don't want to speak for her, but what my conversations with her, always come back to is this um mixed and music becomes this tool the storytelling tool and it's not only speaking to stories that are that are happening right now you know um migration stories but it allows us to go back to this history mm -hmm. that we that we talked about before you know there are other examples um you know where the musical blending is a bit more obvious like there's banjo and and harana or um estela's dancing zapateado which is a you know percussive mexican folk dance mm -hmm. and then doing appalachian clogging so <laughs> this happens in so many different ways and like you point out too axel with the language it's linguistic it's it's going back from english and spanish and it's it's spanglish and it's it's pronouncing you know um Spanish words like estilo a la pocha like it's you know like it's all of these things that that get to be when you're dealing with this framework of Mexilatin music. Mm. You mentioned that kind of the Lua project's focus is kind of more on like this internal or community journey of like who we are, how do we define ourselves, where do we create our space, and in this in the series, we're kind of talking about poder and cultura, right? Power and culture, um, but those aren't necessarily ex like mutually exclusive, right? Uh, in a sense, the cultura that she's drawing from, that a lot of these musicians are drawing from and creating, is essentially powerful in itself, which is amazing because it not only empowers someone like uh, Estela or someone like you to um, find and create your own space and create your own kind of culture and identity, but then you can also project that out to where you're existing. Yeah, I mean, I agree with what you just said in that the, the culture comes from that or the, the strength comes from that cultural um, this new it's it's new it's fresh it's and it, it's it's interesting and it's like kind of hard to characterize because like <laughs> we just talked about how it's not new and fresh because this history is a lot 
deeper and richer than we think. But at the same time, like this, the combination of these two cultural paradigms just open up like this endless space of storytelling of identity. Um, you know, I think a lot when I think about the work of Estella and the Lua project, I think about Gloria Anzaldúa, mm-hmm. the Chicana feminist writer who, you know, wrote about like the power and the strength of standing in these two places at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that that is the space of the Chicana. Um, and I think for the Chicana in Appalachia, like that's a different space, right? Like yeah. it's, it's another space. It's an additional space. So, yeah, it's a different a bridge a that's lot. being built. Yes, and it's really powerful, and it's a really rich culture. So, I think that it's all of those things. Yeah, that's great. So um, and and kind of so, um, you mentioned that. Kanalua project has a sense of community and building solidarity and build and growing in that sense. Uh, the the next group that we introduced earlier on uh, that you mentioned, Chiapalache, they have a little bit more of a contrast where they use what you talk bluegrass, but they use it in kind of a different way than what you would typically perceive are like the default cultural or political givens of what exists in Appalachia. So it's, there's a, a sense of resistance in that. Um, so yeah, you described as engaging another dimension of US border politics in Appalachia uh, by engaging these sentiments of protest and resistance within a very traditional Appalachian space in, in music. Um, anything else you wanna add about kind of how you define them versus the Lua Project Corp, you know, in complement to the Lua Project? Yeah, I would say in both cases, right? These these are both artists who are who are very intentional about their messages, and I think that's clear just by listening to their music, right? These are carefully chosen words and um, ways of you know weaving Spanish and English, and I think with the Lua project, they are so active in their local communities. So mm-hmm. Estella and her partner, Dave, run a um, early music education program together and uh, early childhood education. And they're very active in the local Charlottesville community. Um, they help to organize all sorts of arts festivals and um, have really, really firm connections. And so I think that they're speaking to a more local experience mm-hmm. in a lot of their music. And in the case of Chiapalachi, they are doing this sort of international, um, you know, solidarity building work through these anti-immigration messages, anti-border wall, you know, messages, which is very clear in the song um, that you're going to share with us. Yeah, so we're yeah. going to go right to it. We're going to share this uh, Latin grass Chiapalachi. And, um, I have questions uh, of where they are and what this event is, but we'll do it after. Uh, yeah, so, so I that- the, the video is, um, I can give the context. So the performance is at the Galax Old Time Fiddlers Convention in Galax, okay. Virginia, which is one of the longest standing like old time music gatherings in the mm-hmm. country. And 
very visible in Appalachian music communities. So if you want to go and hear like traditional Appalachian music, Galax is like a place to be. So I think that that helps contextualize what we're about to hear. Got it. Yeah. So the audio will be a little bit different, but uh, it's, 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 it's a good scene to visualize and to be able to witness. those back to back and i was like this is <laughs> it threw me off i was like all right this is definitely different well that's amazing um so uh that i decided that we show that one because i think the content the context which it was in i think was pretty informative uh, but if you want to check out a little bit more of it and be able to hear it a little better Chapalache, they have they're streaming on various parts so you can search them up and we'll put them in the description um, but that's great. So you mentioned where they are. My initial reaction was like, I guess the space, it, it definitely had this more of a festival feeling. Uh, yeah. And then the- It's actually, the, it's actually a competition in uh, Yeah, because it was number 87. I was yeah. like, someone's voting for this. And yeah. you know, the first thing that I, I came to mind, I was like, I mean, I wrote this down. I was like, I was like, where is this? Who's in the crowd? Because they're cheering <laughs> so much. Uh, and then like, I was trying to figure out who like, 
the band members were because I realized um, in some of the kind of in between uh, when I guess what would they call the other three what would they be saying uh, they're not like singing they're, they're oh the 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 response like yes the, call the and singing call and response the ones doing the response I I, I noticed their uh their they had a little bit of an accent so I noticed that you can hear it a little bit more on the on the actual song if you stream it and then what made me laugh in the beginning was the accent of when they were introduced of the guy <laughs> who has a very 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 strong accent saying from Buenos Aires <laughs> oh that was great oh, yeah we got that hard r um yeah and that so so like maybe I can just say what's going on here like mm -hmm. so this style of singing traditional like early bluegrass gospel singing mm. which you know gospel like white gospel traditions came from you know gospel started with black communities and sort of emerged in these different sub styles one of which became bluegrass gospel mm -hmm. so you would hear people like bill monroe um sing in what was called the high lonesome style of singing so it's this high-pitched male mm -hmm. falsetto bluegrass voice which uh, Joe Troop, who is actually the only non the non Latinx member of of Chapalachi, who's from North Carolina, um, you know that's sort of the persona that he he has. Like you're noting um, these different accents, so his his very uh, gospely Southern way of singing, uh, and then the the response of um, of his bandmates, right, in Spanish in their Spanish accented English. Um, is noticeable and I think that's kind of part of the I think there's like an intention there too yeah yeah and of course their message is very clear right <laughs> yeah uh, that's you know the other amazing part that we need to get into and um, <clears throat> because of the specific style that they're singing I, I don't think it's super easy when you're the first time uh, it's a little clearer if you stream it or search it up but one of the parts that I found fascinating because the crowd was also cheering about when they like kind of like uh, finished this as, so the kind of repetition is like, come sisters, brothers gather near, we've come to share our worries, right? And then the response goes, we fear what some folks have been saying. And then Joe mentions about Latin Americans, the truth's been misconstrued. Uh, and then it says, there's all kinds of talk about building a wall down along the southern border um and then the response is about building a wall between you and me and then this is the where it was so interesting that they got a positive response it says lord and if such nonsense should come true then we'll have to knock it down very explicit and they're saying this in like i guess in a very traditional appalachian type of setting what do you make of that yeah so i've asked joe about you know if there was a sense of risk and mm -hmm. the conclusion seemed to be yes and that you know they they and i should also contextualize this um that this i think was actually the same weekend mm. on the other side of virginia in charlottesville where the, the lua project is based so this was this video is from august 2017 when the um domestic terrorist rally in charlottesville right um resulted in the death of heather hayer so 
the, you know, right wing uh, neo-Nazi gathering in Charlottesville, mm. and then for a group um, like Chapalachi to come and, and make such a political statement in the wake of that, in the wake of that event, right? I think that really kind of in, heightens the tension. Yeah. Um, and I think that um, this shows you a lot about maybe Appalachian music communities that, yes, this is probably a like majority white gathering, but that these spaces are increasingly, um, not only increasingly progressive, but increasingly diverse, mm -hmm. which is exciting and I think important for the future of Appalachian music. Um, so I think that they're, you know, that element of, of risk or the sort of the guts, so to speak, that it would have taken to to come out and to address this crowd in this way with this musical protest song. It's a protest song. Yeah, uh, I I totally uh, agree. And I was I was I was fascinated by the context of that. And if you get to listen to the song, um, I think you'll appreciate it even more if you just sit down and listen to it a couple of times because it's a very direct, very explicit message and just a very also specific um, style and, and context. Um, I was gonna ask <clears throat> just the way that I was mentioning earlier about using culture in kind of this powerful way. It's just, in my view, it's just, it's just kind of badass. <laughs> um, I think we struggle so much with issues of policy, um, obviously racism, identity, discrimination, uh, immigration issues. Um, and I've, there's a few conversations that I've listened to that kind of mentioned that, you know, uh, culture always tends to move a little bit faster than how our politics moves. Mm -hmm. And then our politics also tends to move a bit faster than our economics moves. We talk about wealth and income disparities, those take so long to overcome, right? And our politics never seem to move fast enough, but there seems to be an opportunity for our culture to actually move forward in a way that adapts a lot easier and is able to grow a lot more. And so this, this is an amazing example because, you know, you may be trying to pass some policy that can help some of these communities that feel invisible or that feel discriminated or that feel unseen or unheard. Um, and maybe that hasn't happened over years, but here you have certain groups that are finding their space, creating their space, sharing with others, you know, breaking down these walls, literally, um, by doing this. And it's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I would consider this a form of it's musical activism. Mm -hmm. Now, I haven't even brought up and, and it's not, you know, these aren't just two examples from two groups. Like we could have a whole nother podcast <laughs> about a group based in Kentucky called Apple Latin and they, mm -hmm. you know, host a program called Cornbread and Tortillas and, you know, they're doing a whole other set of things. So it's do they invite Mitch McConnell? <laughs> What's that? Do they invite Mitch McConnell? uh great question <laughs> <laughs> uh you know what was funny is like you mentioned uh, and one of the things that in Berea College Kentucky they had a mariachi ensemble I was like we don't even I don't think we have that even here in North Carolina I was like what 
Yeah, you can take mariachi for college credit at Berea. <laughs> um, I think for me, it's like we have to remember, we have to kind of bring ourselves back to some, some basic truths or bits of logic. Like, you know, wherever Latinx people are, so too is their music. Mm, yes. You know, so so too is their food. Yes. Um, and their dancing. You know that 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 people need these things. Um, and, you know, we are no exception as like a Latinx people who are especially invested in some of these cultural forms like music and dance and food. Um, so to me, it's kind of like, you know, well, well, of course there's a Mexilatchian music scene. And of course there's a Mexilatchian food uh you know like recipe <laughs> repertoire like there's you know of course these things happen because where people go their music goes with them yeah no for sure um <clears throat> and there's one more uh thing i wanted to share uh but maybe we can just talk about it as we're running out of time uh one of the pieces i I kind of started diving into either YouTube and the and the streaming kind of uh, locations of Japalach and stuff, and and I, I think the next like one of the next songs that was suggested was was part of I guess their their second album was uh, the Dream. And I was like every time I see Dream, I'm like ah oh, this probably applies somehow. And I watched the video, and honestly, I was uh, I was super emotional. It was it was it was not only a great production but like it was it was very powerful and um i'm happy to share this we'll put this maybe at the end for people to like just sit and listen to it and kind of get a sense of what you mean by this like activist music and performance musicians um but yeah that's a great example that i think that encompasses what you're trying to say of how people just use this very powerful tool yeah that i think is probably one of their most powerful examples the the song the dreamer and that video um which is you know telling the story of um of undocumented latinos living in north carolina so you know that's so that's such a that's an experience that's so central to all of these things that we're talking about um you know we know that the latinx experience here is in the U.S. and even within that in Appalachia in the South, mm -hmm. it, it's very diverse. You know, the, the undocumented Latinx experience is different than my third generation Chicana, Ohio, Mississippi narrative. And, you know, we, I think in recognizing the diversity of those lived experiences, right, we're able to better focus our energies um, in terms of you know what how do we how do we um give to the community as a whole mm -hmm. and what does that look like and so um yeah i think they're there that's a good example of yeah. doing doing that work it's an amazing piece and we'll share it we'll put it in the description and we'll have it at the end of this uh so <laughs> we've been talking a lot but we could continue talking um let's try to come wrap it up for those listening this is a conversation that if you want to join it, there's multiple ways that you can join it by listening to some of the content that we've put, uh, by reading some of this 
amazing work and research that's being done already. I want to close our conversation with a couple questions that we'll hopefully ask most uh, of our guests. And I've tried to modify it a little bit. Uh, the first one is like, what is a part of la cultura of Latinx Appalachian Southerners? What, what's something that you would say? Can I just say music and like, or, or are you, are you getting at something more specific? Yeah. What is, what represents a Latinx person in Appalachia? Okay. Culturally. Well, I mean, this image of the, the Mexican hillbilly comes to mind. (laughs) What is that image? Like, what is a Mexican hillbilly? Like, is it just the image of the hillbilly guy on the front porch replaced like with the mm. like you know uh, um mexicano like i don't know <laughs> and i yeah. think i think it can i think it's any latino person in appalachia that's who i imagine as latinx mm-hmm. appalachian you know someone who's living and, and working and contributing to the region However, they whatever they bring culturally to that space that becomes Appalachian. Mm. That's great. It's it's ever evolving. It's growing. It's changing, um, and I think that ties into a little bit of uh, of something that I thought when I was um, reading some of this. I'm looking at this. Latinos or Latinx immigrants tend to have this kind of label placed on them as they're ahistorical, unmoving, unchanging can't assimilate Mm. but that's it's totally the opposite right wherever they come into not only do are they informed by the context in which they're in and you get mixed latin music but they also provide and give to it whatever culture whatever uh traditions they're bringing into it and i think this as an example is great right It, it isn't some like unmoving kind of like you know all you are always is just labor <laughs> that exists right you know you kind of evolve and grow and create this new context by entering this space and then based on your experience and work uh, what is something that for you represents this concept that we're trying to build of nuestro self well i love just the linguistic you know idea here of claiming the South as as ours in the context of the Latinx community. And I think that um, you know, Estella labels her music in the Lua project as, as Mexilachin. And that's a, a term that her and I have sort of mulled over and dreamed about. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, just ex- all of the possibilities and the potentials. And for me, it's like, well, if even practically, what is the future of Nuestro South? It is, it is Mexilachin and it is, you know, it's, it's all of these, these things, it is Appalachian and it's Mexilachin. And, and I feel like this notion of a, what I call in my dissertation, a Mexilachin future of the South um, and of Appalachia that you know, I'm, I'm thinking about generations now who will have Latinos who will have grown up and experienced Appalachia as, as home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's the point that we're at. We're, we're there, you know, it's, yeah. it's not like we're talking about years and years in the future. Like that's, that's now. And 
And I, I think that something like Mexalachan music or just the idea of Mexalacha, that's, there's a place for people to locate their, their experiences and their histories and their stories in that, in that concept. Um, yeah. No, so. It's, 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 it's an incredible journey that not only didn't just start, started long ago, but it continues. And, and I totally uh, sympathize with that. It, it really does continue with these younger generations. And um, we're hoping that conversations like this essentially helps them find that history and also find themselves and where they can express themselves. So we appreciate this so much. This was honestly super fun, super entertaining, super educational. Uh, we hope for others uh, that it serves that purpose and we're going to be sharing resources because there's so much more. But thank you so much, uh, Sophia, for all your work that you do, for all your research and for being so vulnerable to share some of this history and personal story. Well, thank you so much, Axel. Muchas gracias.